welcome to today's show. My name is Glenn Deason. I'm a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. Uh, with me is the excellent Alexander Mercuris. And the guest today is uh, Nikolai Petro. Uh, welcome. Nice to be here. <clears throat> so, Nikolai Petro, you are a professor at the University of Rhode Island in the US, and uh, you also have some uh, experience uh, besides academia, as you've served uh, as, um, as the US State Department's uh, special assistant for policy on the Soviet Union under uh, Bush Sr. Uh, so the topic of today, though, is uh, your most recent book, which has uh, attracted a lot of attention, an excellent mm -hmm. book, I would add, uh, which is called The Tragedy of Ukraine, What Classical Greek Tragedy, tragedy Can Teach Us About Conflict Resolution. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I often make this uh, argument that Ukraine is you know, divided at two levels, uh, both at the national level, but also international or, or regionally in which uh, you both have this division between Eastern Ukraine and Western Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But this is often exacerbated by the division of Europe, as mm -hmm. you have Europe, uh, sorry, as you have NATO countries and Russia effectively pulling Ukraine in opposite directions. So, but your book mm -hmm. focuses primarily then on this uh, national division, the division within Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps yeah, start off by mm -hmm. telling us a bit about this internal dynamic of Ukraine. So in your book, you refer to it as two nations in one state. And, uh, uh, well, can you elaborate? Well, well, what, what does it mean to be Ukrainian or how is it contested? So that's a very wide question, big question. No, I, it, no it's actually, it, it makes the discussion very simple in some ways, because as I understand it, the fight or the struggle in Ukraine is about who gets to determine the proper definition of Ukrainian identity. And this has been an ongoing debate for, I would say, at least 150 years, uh, not so much among average Ukrainians, obviously, but among intellectual elites who are trying to impose one or the other definition. And uh, Ukraine is a very diverse country, culturally and religiously, and even linguistically. So there are pockets within uh, this vast territory the size of France, which have their own distinctive historical identities that have been reinforced by being parts of different uh, empires. And these empires, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russian Empire, were often antagonistic toward each other. And they used their parts of the Ukrainian population to mm -hmm. assert their identity over the border region, over, over the rest of the country. And uh, when the country, therefore, came into being after uh, World War One, and after the uh, Russian Revolution, mm. it indeed had uh, vast internal conflicts, and uh, in the the effort to establish, therefore, a new nation, uh, had to come to terms with these with with this internal conflictual dynamic, and the problem, of course, is that uh, this has never been fully resolved not even after 1991. 
<laughs> so what is the main challenge now then? How do you see national mm. unity uh, possibly being formed? I guess, uh, you know, you have this common argument now that the Russian invasion has perhaps, uh, um, you know, promoted more unity than uh, was there before. But still, it seems that, you know, below the surface, there's still a lot of, uh, uh, you know, antagonism uh, in, in all parts of Ukraine. Uh, obviously, even more so with the regions that are, you know, aligning themselves with Russia. Well, uh, yes. So um, <laughs> I don't believe in the long-term effect of um, these kind of efforts to forge national unity through military campaigns. I think they work for the purpose of the military campaign. But uh, I do see these kind of antagonisms as needing to be officially supported and promoted by the government. And I hope, and I, have, I believe historically, this is a very difficult and arduous process. Maintain essentially national animosities at such a high pitch for a long time. It works for revolutionary movements and it works for mm -hmm. fringe mm -hmm. elements in the body politic. But most people just mm -hmm. want to live more or less normal, tranquil lives and it's hard to attract them to these kind of extremist forms, extremist ideologies of which I consider nationalism to be probably the prime example today of, a, of an extremist uh, ideology. Mm -hmm. So um, I think uh, that in the long run, the geographic location of Ukraine and its long historical ties with Russia, but not only with Russia, with Poland, with Hungary, with Europe in general, of which I consider Russia part, uh, will force it to adapt a mm -hmm. common sense position that mm -hmm. uh, allows it to uh, seek a form of reconciliation and healing. But I think with with its neighbors. But I think that that begins by uh, uh, with with reconciliation and healing at home. And I think that's the most important thing that I would focus mm -hmm. on is to is no longer is for Ukrainians, I hope to stop thinking of uh, themselves as one narrowly defined ethnos, but mm. to accept a more pluralistic and multicultural mm. version of their identity, which mm. I think would bring them closer mm. uh, to to Europe uh, and and to a, a modern European way of thinking. Absolutely. Can I can I just say because of course, Nikolai Petri, you, you're bringing up the question of tragedy, and of course I'm Greek. I'm ethnic Greek. My aunt used to act in Greek tragedies. Uh, she was an actress amongst many other things. But one of the things that you understand about tragedy, Greek tragedy, is that it is in fact the participants who make the decisions. In other words, tragedy. What makes a tragedy is the actual will of the participant and 
a participant can, somebody, a person who's involved in a tragedy can either take a direction which leads to good outcomes or take a direction that leads to catastrophic ones. Nothing is pre-programmed. That is a fundamental thing to understand. And I think that is absolutely true about Ukraine as well. Ukrainians have choices. And what has happened is because those choices have not been made well, and I don't think any of us here would dispute that. What has happened is that it has not only, of course, created enormous problems within Ukraine itself, which are unresolved, but it has made Ukraine both vulnerable to interference by self-interested outsiders, and it has also made created a situation where Ukraine is, in a sense, a kind of challenge to those outsiders, that they feel that they have to fill the vacuum, because if they don't, the other side will do so as well. But it is within Ukraine itself that the solution lies. And it's one that Ukrainians themselves have the power to shape. I couldn't have put it better. I wish I'd been able to say that in less than 300 pages. <laughs> but you, you've, you've summarized exactly the dilemma. The, of course, my book looks into how this came to be a dilemma and how often the choices that were facing political leaders um, were ones where they had to make sacrifices and engage in self-examination and conclude that maybe some of the actions that they were taking toward their uh, ostensible enemies, fellow Ukrainians, uh, very often, um, were better not made. And had they chosen compassion instead, an entirely different historical course of development would have unfolded. But that is still the dilemma facing Ukraine, and of course, any country of which there are many that has ever gone through a civil war uh, understands this problem and either resolves it or divides. What do you think is the risk of division? Because I mean, at the moment, this is what everybody is talking about. I mean, we see uh, the four regions that, you right. know, the Russians now say are, you know, Right. moving away from ukraine is that is there a is there a risk that this division is going to become permanent is it going to get worse um or is there a way is there a bridge that you can create between the various ukrainian communities that they can come together i'm going to say this there's lots of ukrainians i used to I'm, i've known lots of ukrainians in britain people from both communities in britain when they came here there weren't these tensions between them that appear to exist in Ukraine. So is it possible that they can somehow find a way to talk to each other um, and come to some kind of arrangement? Or are we going to see this process of partition and division continue and get right. worse? So what we have today on the ground is a de facto forced partition of the country. Uh, and the question I believe that military analysts uh, are trying to come to an understanding about is whether this uh, is likely to persist or is likely to be reversed. 
I, I, I have no way of, of uh, addressing that question. But I would say this, that if uh, what we've been talking about so far is correct, that there is an underlining internal conflict that leads to Ukraine being vulnerable to external predations, then uh, overcoming that is the key to both internal healing, social stability, prosperity, and security. Mm. And uh, how that can be done is by pursuing, uh, or ex I should say, accepting a of Ukrainian identity than the one that has been mm. accentuated since 2004, and most notably since 2014, that uh, the ideal of Ukrainian identity is Galician identity, which refers to the uh, historical Western, uh, uh, Western regions of Ukraine, four Western regions of Ukraine, which uh, to this day are the only regions of the country where uh, Ukrainian is the predominant language spoken. Uh, Lviv is the only city uh, in Ukraine which is predominantly Ukrainian speaking. All the rest have always been historically uh, ru predominantly Russian speaking uh, and uh, which uh, has a distinctive version of uh, the Christian religion, uh, uh, Greek, uh, Catholics or Uniates, uh, which uh, have a certain historical antagonism with uh, the rest of the country, which is uh, Orthodox. Mm -hmm. So there are real uh, dichotomies there. And uh, imposing that version as of identity, Galician identity, as the version for all of Ukraine is one of the things that has fostered so much domestic conflict. Uh, over over so many decades. Um, I would argue that the uh, predominant view um, in Eastern and Southern Ukraine is that each region should be allowed to keep its own local identity to value its, its uh, ancestry, to value its cultural connections, uh, whatever they may be. Uh, to other to other cultures, neighboring cultures, but uh, that uh, there doesn't need to be an imposition of a single um, uh, a single version of Ukrainian identity, particularly one that is uh, of Western Ukraine that is unfamiliar uh, to uh, much of Eastern and Southern Ukraine. But I, I was wondering <clears throat> if, uh, if, if uh, this more pluralistic understanding of what Ukraine is, if that would ever be acceptable to the Western Ukrainians, because it often seems that, uh, well, well, to a lesser no. extent, it wasn't that strong before 2004 with this uh, so-called Orange Revolution. But, but to some extent, they seem to become each other's uh, other, that is uh, almost uh, adversary. Now, the reason I say that if, if you're Western Ukrainian, uh, you subscribe to this idea that there's only Ukrainians, one ethnicity, one culture, one language, then you wouldn't you automatically look at Eastern Ukrainians as being dangerous for 
preserving what you would then consider to be an imperial Russian legacy by maintaining Russian culture and language and uh, mm. and, and and ethnicity. And uh, again, on the other side, the Eastern Ukrainians who considers you know Ukraine to have two or more ethnicities, cultures, and languages. Of course, they would see the ethno-nationalism of Western Ukraine to be the divisive thing that undermines what the true what the true Ukrainian is. I was just wondering, is uh, 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 since matter, or have we seen any indications that uh, this would be acceptable to Western Ukrainians to have a more pluralist understanding mm-hmm. of what it means to be Ukrainian? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, my perception of average people, um, and I visited Western Ukraine, is that um, they tend to get along on a daily level. Uh, The question uh, that you're addressing involves the intellectual elite and their political ambitions. So here the question is, Uh, what uh, is more important to the Western Ukrainian political elite? And the answer to this has differed over time. So in the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution, many Western Ukrainian intellectuals uh, supported, although not all, but but, but uh, a significant uh, proportion, supported the creation of a Western Ukrainian People's Republic, um, which would be separate from what they called uh, Upper Dnieper Ukraine, which is the the rest of the the country east of the the Dnieper. And uh, that as a result, um, they could form their own independent country. They uh, attended the Versailles peace talks Uh, separately from the Ukraine represented by the Kievan uh, regime at the time, and made the case that they should be allowed their own country along with the newly established country of Poland. But uh, they were denied this opportunity. And as a result, uh, they went into uh, in exile, essentially, and fought against uh, fought against Polish domination in those regions. And when overlordship switched to the Soviets, uh, they started to fight the Soviets again for the objective of obtaining national uh, national independence. Mm-hmm. So, mm, national independence, I think, is the key point. And the question today is how do you secure national independence for Ukraine, given that it has been such a difficult road uh, for Ukrainians to obtain? Now, the current dominant argument in the context since 2014 of Russian invasion is that National independence must be forged by military means Mm. evicting Russia. And evicting Russia means, uh, concomitantly, destroying all connections to Russia so that nothing remains 
domestically that would be to which Russia could hold on in terms of extending what the current Kievan regime defines as uh, the colonial legacy of Russian, the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. This uh, strikes me as an unrealistic objective, or rather one that uh, is one that it, it is an objective that current political leaders in Ukraine could make their mission for their lifetime, but there is no way to guarantee that mission will continue for their children and their children's children. And that's what makes it, I think, uh, a hopeless cause to, to pursue unity that way. I would rather think that a more successful way mm -hmm. to preserve Ukrainian national independence and unity is to encourage local pluralism, to allow local pluralism in exchange for civic consciousness and identity with the Ukrainian nation. Mm -hmm. And this, if the Ukrainian nation would accept the pluralism and diversity of its population, mm -hmm. would I think be something that the vast majority of Eastern and Southern Ukrainians would accept and thrive uh, under? Because mm -hmm. after all, their Russian, their identity, I should say, as Ukrainians or sometimes culturally Russian is a uh, is part of a larger Eastern Slavic identity in which there are many different regions. Mm -hmm. And I think we arbitrarily think of only three today, white Russian, great Russian, and Ukrainian. But within each of those, there are multiple additional identities. And it seems to me bootless to try to suppress mm -hmm. these when encouraging and accepting them uh, would allow for a strengthening of a bond of the individual to the to, to the national identity to the to to a to a sense of to replace a sense of nationalism with a sense of civic patriotism is, is what I think mm -hmm. would be more successful. Now this is uh, you make uh, some very very powerful points, uh, Professor Petro. If I can just ask. One question I have never been able to understand about this conflict is why does Galicia, a relatively small, well, region, one region within this very large area, which is Ukraine, a country the size of France, bigger perhaps than France, how has it been able since 2004 especially to exercise such a degree of political and even cultural dominance over the whole. I mean, how has it been able to leverage its position to achieve this position? Yeah. I, I think it is obviously not the impact of its economy or its population mm. or even its strategic uh, position, geostrategic uh, value. I think it is uh, an aspect of the mythology of the birth of Ukrainian identity and the way in which this region has appropriated to itself for decades the identity of the most nationally conscious 
area of Ukraine. Therefore, if a Ukrainian supports at all the idea of national sovereignty, then the guiding star for that national sovereignty must be Galician history, Galician identity, and uh, uh, the concomitant political manifestations of that identity. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, given perhaps the time at which uh, these political, Galician political Ukrainian movements were being formed and their immediate task, which was to liberate themselves from Polish overlordship and then Soviet overlordship, the element of their national mythology, which was most accentuated, was that of a heightened sense of, of, of nationalism as a sense of distinctiveness from, uh, mm -hmm. from others, uh, maintaining a more distinct and pure sense of Ukrainian identity so that uh, Ukrainians would not be confused with their neighbors, be it Polish or Russian or Jews or, or mm -hmm. others, uh, and a certain uh, insistence, aggressive insistence on the need to establish the hegemony of a Ukrainian national identity within Ukrainian borders. Mm. By the way, the concept of Ukrainian borders, uh, of course, is very malleable. So indeed, the aspirations of Ukrainian nationalists extend quite a bit beyond the current uh, borders of Ukraine. Um, but uh, be that as it may, I think uh, it has to do, the answer to your question has to do with the mythology of uh, Ukrainian history and the fact that it is um, being taught uh, has been taught for now quite a mm -hmm. while as being a mythology of um, resistance, rebellion, and self-assertiveness. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Does this also explain uh, the, uh, the high representation of the, the nationalists uh, as well? Or because uh, I'm thinking... They uh, not just the right, right wing nationalists, but also the fascist groups. It's all often pointed out that uh, in the actual votes or polling, they have very little support, especially the fascist groups. Uh, but uh, still, they acquired uh, such an immense influence. Is it right? Really, this Galician uh, romantic uh, national identity they're sending, or is it? Uh, or is it also their role in, mm. in toppling the mm. government of 2014? Uh, you know, their power on the front line against uh, yeah. you know, yeah. Donbass. Like what, how, how, how can we explain this huge right. influence that I, they have acquired? I, I don't, mm -hmm. uh, I, I uh, wish to dis distinguish between romantic nationalism and militant nationalism. So uh, romantic nationalism <clears throat> uh, refers uh, historically to the uh, concept of nationhood that embraced a sense of popular involvement and therefore could be deemed to be a precursor of uh, modern representative government in Europe. But after 
World War One, and thanks to the rise of fascism, this became uh, this this sense of uh, entitlement became transformed into a militant nationalism. Now, what I think has happened in Ukraine is perfectly logical. I think it happened in Nazi Germany. I think it happened in fascist Italy, and then continued. We should not forget in uh, Franco's uh, Spain and Salazar's Portugal as well, uh, we are talking about ideologies that not everyone embraces wholeheartedly, but that it is much more, uh, it, 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 it demands much more effort on the part of the individual to fight rather than to accept. So on a day-to-day -day level, most people, especially trained as they were from uh, the mm -hmm. Soviet past, to let uh, ideological phrases simply bounce off them, I would say, not recognizing how much they actually uh, affect thinking, but to say, well, you know, mm -hmm. that's that's them. That is that is the official government position, but you know, <clears throat> I I don't uh, deal in politics. I don't want to. Uh, think about that, or to give uh, the uh, current political uh, uh, policies or current policies of the government a positive spin, the uh, most people just uh, allow things to happen uh, rather than fight the system. This is, a, I think, a perfectly natural response to a government that is captured by an ideology which is messianic. And that's what we have currently in Ukraine, uh, a government with a mission. And that mission is to, uh, I would say only partly to uh, defeat Russia. That's, I would say, the first step. The second natural step, as has been highlighted in uh, for a very long time in nationalist writings, Ukrainian nationalist writings, is to cleanse Ukraine of all foreign influence. Russian being the dominant foreign influence that needs to be cleansed. But I would like mm. to remind our listeners that um, any hint of European liberalism is, is just as much anathema to Ukrainian nationalism mm. as, as Russian colonialism is. Mm. Um. Professor Petro, you, you started with uh, tragedy and Greek things. So I'm going to continue with Greek things a little because, of course, Greece is also a country which has had a very, very powerful nationalist movement, yeah. an, uh, uh, an ethnicist nationalist movement. And I am I'm a personal witness. I, I mean, I know how, um, you know, uh, fascistic ideas can spread within it, even if there are only a minority of it. And of course, purification, the concept of purification of the ethnos is not one that is unknown to us in Greece. We've seen that too. We've seen that in language reforms. We've seen that in attempts to, uh, uh, you know, at times to affect education. It is completely sterile. It leads nowhere. It ultimately disconnects the elite who tries to impose it from the actual vital forces of the society that they uh, purport to govern. And I just wanted to make that observation because, of course, I've seen it all myself. Can I ask this basic question? Because you bring up the issue of Slavs, the fact that Ukrainians 
um, Belarusians, Russians, all of these people are Slavs. Is there within Ukrainian nationalism today any acknowledgement of this fact that the people that they are at war with currently are Slavs, that there is a Slav um, identity, a Slav community that somehow transcends the divisions between these different nations? Um, the answer depends on who you're talking to. So my sense of the intellectual component of Ukrainian nationalism is that, of course, there is an understanding, but for the purposes of the current struggle, it not so much cannot be acknowledged because not acknowledging what the entire world and historical literature has uh, is based on would be foolish, but rather to reinterpret it. And I have a section in my book um, in which highlights how the relationship between Kiev and Moscow must be redefined from a nationalist Ukrainian perspective. So what uh, from a from Ukrainian nationalist perspective, what happened was a usurpation of historical tradition. And I point to the ancient biblical tradition of Jacob and Esau and a, 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 a similar mythology, which has been woven into Western civilization with Romulus and Remus and, and other noted historical examples. Two brothers equal in uh, potential, however, and Cain and Abel, of course, However, one took advantage of the other. And from the Ukrainian national perspective, it was the wrong brother that got the benefits of this, the Muscovite brother. So what Muscovy became, namely this global empire, the Russian empire and then the Soviet Union, should have been Ukraine's. That was Ukraine's destiny. And so uh, the effort to understand why that did not take place from a Ukrainian his nationalist historic perspective must be sought at the very origins. And from then, it must be traced through the duplicity of Muscovite leaders. So that today, we should not be talking, from a Ukrainian nationalist perspective, of Kiev and Rus. We should be talking about Rus Ukraina. And therefore, we do not refer to Russia as the Russian Empire, but rather as Muscovy. And the, all the legacy and the heritage of anything that is good uh, from that uh, ancient uh, Slavic culture uh, should uh, be attributed to Kiev, not to Muscovy, because everything that uh, Muscovy touched uh, is tainted and therefore uh, a, um, a poisoning of the original beneficial Slavic well. So it's, uh, I'm uh, looking toward the future. Is there a way to cleanse this well? I'm not sure uh, from, a, from the perspective of Ukrainian uh, nationalist history. Um, at, at the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, I must mm -hmm. say that Ukrainian nationalist historians like Khrushchevsky were not adamant about this kind of conflict. 
uh, and, and didn't see it as a struggle that had to end in the extermination of one brother by the other brother. But uh, with each passing generation, it has become, the, the rhetoric has become more and more attuned mm. to that mutual self-annihilation. Unfortunately, and, and why is this being so prominent a theme today? Because it, it, is, it is to the glee of uh, Western powers and contending powers that uh, would be happy to see the destruction of Russia if it could be accomplished at the expense of Ukrainian sovereignty. I think this is exactly where I was going to lead to, because, of course, you've told us many fascinating and important things about Ukrainian nationalism, about its origins, about Slavs, about relations between Russians and Ukrainians in between Kiev and Moscow. You're not going to get, you're not going to find any of this if you go to the British or American media. They don't talk about this at all. They don't even to any great extent acknowledge in my experience, that Ukraine and Russia are, you know, the Slav nations. I mean, this isn't there any, anywhere. This is a straightforward struggle between two countries in which one has attacked the other. How are we ever going to get past that? <clears throat> well, the, uh, all that I can point to is historical mm. examples, examples of the past. Obviously, this is not the first instance, nor will it be the last, of nations attacking other nations, of mm. nations fighting. Um, so there's no particular reason except uh, political expedience uh, to ascribe something unique to this uh, particular conflict. Um, in that context, I would say look at the great struggles that we have known in the past between mm. um, France and Germany. Uh, the common assumption, as Sir Herbert Butterfield reminds us in his writings, was that these two countries, because of their geographic proximity, because of their role in European history, would always be at each other's throats. One could look at the um, troubled history of uh, England and Ireland, or closer to home, the United States and Mexico, where after the land grab of 1840, the United States managed to invade Mexico an additional 10 times. Skip to the present, uh, Mexico seems to be, and most Mexicans uh, seem to be entirely comfortable with welcoming uh, wealthy American tourists and um, and retirees uh, into their country. And uh, the interaction is, of course, uh, not. But we've been able to move beyond it. Mm. I must imagine that any realistic discussion of history that wants to look to the future mm. must envision uh, that time, uh, which is inevitable, a uh, time at which Russians and Ukrainians will perhaps have uh, uh, not exactly perhaps a cordial relationship, but one no less antagonistic 
uh, than the one between uh, the English and the Irish today. Mm. And I, I think that that is easily predictable. Certainly Angela Merkel, I was just reading her uh, latest interview in Spiegel, she talks about this as also as an inevitability. And, and mm. I think she's quite right on that point. Mm. I just wanted to make one observation about these things. Mexico, the United States, France, Germany, uh, Britain, Ireland is, and of course I live in Britain and, uh, you know, one is very conscious here of the Irish issues. But one of the reasons these things were settled is because the outside world left the parties alone to settle them. I mean, there hasn't been constant interference by self-interested outsiders in the Mexico-US issue um, or the, the France-Germany issue. Most countries wanted there to be a reconciliation between Germany and France. And of course, um, they Ireland is a little different, but again, it was essentially the same. The trouble is, one of the problems is, that as far as I can see at the moment, there is a desire on the contrary, on the part of some countries in the West, to see this confrontation between Poland, uh, between sorry, Ukraine and Russia uh, uh, continue and continue indefinitely. Is is that also well, your sense? No, of this? yeah. I mean, you make a very good point, namely that we live in a different age than the one that allowed statesmen the time to deliberate and the time to reflect on the consequences of their action without being pressed into immediate decisions and responses. However, it strikes me that it is not so much a characteristic of the age as a characteristic of our failed statesmanship. In other words, I still like to think that a true statesman would be defined as one who could say, don't trouble me with these things that you say I have to address immediately. My objective is indeed one that looks toward a long-term future and tries to set a course for establishing uh, what I have called for is some sort of larger European settlement on these issues. One has inklings of this of this type of thinking occasionally getting through to people in the statements of Merkel, who is retired, Macron, uh, when they say, well, what happens next? You know, what happens after this conflict? Because all conflicts end, all conflicts end. So the question is, how do we encourage that? Now, those who do not want the conflict to end really have, in my opinion, they should be exposed as people who have no vision of the future, no, no vision for themselves in that future, and no vision of the future for their children. And because uh, once you get down to, uh, to, to asking them, well, what is it exactly that you see as <clears throat> the stable resolution to the problems that Russia brings to the table in terms of European security that, from Russia's perspective, necessitated this type of action in Ukraine, um, you typically have either silence on the part of our uh, politicians 
or some sort of fanciful notion that Russians will somehow be transformed once Alexei Navalny is, is liberated and elected president. This is, in other words, a complete fantasy and, and should be dismissed and exposed as such. But also, why, well, I guess it begs the question, because when we began to speak, we, we, I think we all agree that uh, the solution must be found within Ukraine, yes. uh, its peoples. But, uh, but again, it's also this second dimension, because as we see, indeed, in, in a lot of civil wars, you have these indiv- internal divisions yes. where you seek, where the internal rival parties, they seek external support to the extent exactly. it creates this huge dependency that gives the externals the power. Because if you see the fighting today in Ukraine, I mean, Donbass, hardly autonomous anymore. They 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 do what Moscow say, and Kiev, they do what the Americans, the British, or what NATO say. So it's uh, so they it's now, you know, a proxy war in every sense of the word. So, um, but, but that's why I was wondering if, <clears throat> is it possible to settle it unless there's a European solution as well? Because uh, well, what, what you're discussing now has been the challenge ever since the Cold War came to an end. This was when we had two different visions of Europe. Was it, uh, you know, Gorbachev's common European home, or was it uh, Bush's uh, Europe Holland free? Uh, you know, which would manifest itself within uh, Europe uh, through an expanded NATO, so a Europe where Russia wouldn't necessarily uh, wouldn't belong, because I feel that's uh, part of the motivations uh, motivation at least here in NATO uh, in in this war. It's, it's seen as an opportunity now to finally create a Europe without Russia, one where countries like Ukraine, who has previously you know, favored the relationship with Russia or NATO, now seem to be aligning itself uh, solely within the Western camp and essentially becoming a new Poland, if you will, uh, very anti-Russian uh, you know, for the decades to come. So, uh, so would, would there be any interest in the West, though, to, um, well, to, well, to resolve this uh, uh, this, this conflict, if, you know, it's, it's on this path. I, it, it may not be the predominant political view in the current struggle, but I would argue that uh, there can be no European security without Russia. It just needs to be stated that boldly and that simply. And once one establishes that as the premise of of dialogue over security matters, then uh, it becomes a matter of how to implement that principle, the idea that there can be no security in Europe without Russia. Interestingly, nearly all of the political actors who now say, we must uh, support Ukraine, we must arm Ukraine, Ukraine must defeat Russia, have at some point earlier said also what I just said, namely that there is no and can be no European security without Russia as a core element of that security configuration. So uh, I think they need to be asked precisely what they mean by that. And it simply does not help the political process or any uh, diplomatic solution to say, we will talk about that later, which is actually the last argument that people now are coming to, because it is it seems rather obvious that Russia must somehow 
be part of the security equation. Otherwise, it will always be a potential disruptor. And, and therefore, there can be no European security with a potential disruptor at its borders. So in order to avoid that, Russia must be involved in the process, as must Ukraine. And here is the key uh, point that I would come back to, that uh, the issue of Ukrainian, Ukraine has in the current conflict lost its sovereignty, not gained it. And as a result, as part of a pan-European security, uh, a pan-European political settlement, which includes a security component, this would be a vehicle for you for restoring true Ukrainian sovereignty. And I define Ukrainian sovereignty as the ability of the nation to make its own decisions without needing to kowtow to any external actor. That's all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not, not. Well, in your book, you write about, uh, a lot about uh, the Minsk Agreement, which was the mm-hmm. initial peace agreement, uh, which uh, will try to resolve the, the conflict that emerged after um, yeah, various NATO governments supported the regime change in Ukraine in 2014. Uh, I just, well, I, I thought about now when we talk about uh, finding a, a, a pan-European peace, one in which Ukraine can be sovereign, because... <laughs> Uh, this is what the Minsk agreement uh, attempted to establish was uh, finding a place for Donbas uh, within a sovereign Ukraine. Uh, but as uh, but as we've seen, uh, that peace agreement was uh, undermined for, if not directly sabotaged, for for seven years. And uh, I also yeah saw the recent interviews with Merkel in both the Bild and uh, Spiegel, in which she. It made this argument that uh, well, uh, it was it wasn't really a um, a peace agreement uh, which was intended to be implemented. It was rather all to buy time. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, again she was uh, um, you know appealing to her Western audiences or not. Uh, but this was also something uh, uh, Francis Hollande uh, repeated as well that he he also he agreed with. Uh, uh, Merkel, that uh, this was to buy time to prepare Ukraine for war as opposed to be a permanent peace. And uh, again, Poroshenko may made the yeah. same argument. Uh, do you think? Well, well, the reason the reason for that, excuse me for ju- jumping right in, but it's such an important point. The reason was because the Minsk agreement was divorced from a broader effort to bring Russia into a larger European security arrangement. If those two strands, the domestic reconciliation of you within Ukraine, as a result of implementing the Minsk Accords, had been pursued alongside and simultaneously with efforts to uh, bring Russia into a larger European security and political settlement, things probably would have proceeded along a very different track. As it was, however, the separation of those two meant that um, as a result of the inability or the, let's say, inability or unwillingness of the Ukrainian government to accept the loss of Eastern Donbass 
and Crimea, uh, there was no way to, e to resolve either issue. Uh, there was no way to, to resolve the tensions within the country and at Ukraine's, uh, the Ukrainian government's insistence, there was no way that Russia could be rewarded as they saw it for, uh, for uh, creating this rift to begin with. So it became a self-fulfilling prophecy that led to the destruction of both Ukrainian sovereignty and I would say European sovereignty in the process, mm -hmm. which is now just as beholden, the Western European leading governments are just as beholden to the United States as Ukraine is. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, mm -hmm. this is always what was needed after 2014, a dual track, want to resolve the, yeah, the divisions within Ukraine, but also mm -hmm. want to yeah, resolve the divisions in Europe. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, this yeah, never was coming. Uh, I I was wondering though if uh, because yeah we we discussed how the nationalists have a, a are more overrepresented if you will in in Ukraine, which uh, prevents also mm -hmm. uh, any reconciliation from occurring both internally but also with Russia, of course. Um, but but where's the opposition to the nationalists uh, as? Uh, uh, again, even within Ukraine in 2018, we saw 73% of Ukrainians voting for Zelensky. And of course, Zelensky at this time was running on a platform in which he wanted you know, to talk to Donbass. He wanted to restore, restore peace with Russia, uh, implement the Minsk agreement. Uh, but again, uh, well, this was uh, all of this was reversed, obviously, under a lot of pressure. Uh, from the nationalists as well as uh, yeah, it's uh, foreign supporters. Uh, mm. uh, I was just wondering, um, there was more outspoken opposition to this uh, confrontational nationalist path uh, before than uh, than we see obviously today. Uh, to, well, what happened to to the opposition? Because uh, a lot of them are still there. Well, the simple answer to your question is the opposition is in jail, in exile, or disenfranchised. You know, all the opposition parties that represented, well, at the very least, perhaps a third of the country's electorate, at times uh, it was the dominant uh, political force, those parties have all been simply made illegal. Um, and although uh, the latest effort at this has occurred under the pressure of <clears throat> a Russian intervention. We mustn't forget that these policies have been underway for at least a decade, even before 2014, at least in terms of the suppression of dissent in the media, uh, the main blow against independent media in Ukraine was uh, this, the, um, the, the taking away the license from three, three major national television channels in February of 2021. So, um, and all of this, uh, as you correctly uh, suggest and point out, uh, was done with the blessing of the United States and the Europeans, not exactly enthusiastic, as enthusiastic about it as the United States government was, 
but let's say uh, they kept mum about the process. And the result is um, that the voices of the opposition, which I wouldn't even call them opposition so much, I would say the alternative view in Ukraine of one that says, um, we are not Russian. We wish to uh, establish our Ukrainian identity, but appeals to the Kievan government, let us be Ukrainians under our own terms, not as you would define it, but as we would define it. And in exchange, we promise you our political uh, loyalty, the political lo loyalty to the political nation. Um, that has been an arrangement or a deal that the Kievan government, Kievan nationalists, specifically <laughs> have not found acceptable. And the reason is, I suspect, because they don't believe it. They don't believe that a Russian speaker in Eastern Ukraine necessarily can be loyal. And I, in my book, I have dozens, a score of examples of uh, senior officials quoted about, as, as I put it, the treasonous nature of the inhabitants of, of Eastern mm -hmm. and Southern Ukraine. Um, so that's, that's a tremendous problem. And it is one that the Ukrainian people themselves will have to address and find mm -hmm. a way to resolve. This is not, there, there is no solution uh, for conciliation or compassion that any outsider can bring. Mm. Tragedy illustrates a way forward. It illustrates mainly by virtue of the disastrous consequences of confusing vengeance with justice. Mm. But um, mm. the recognition that vengeance is not true justice has to take place in the minds and hearts of every individual. <laughs> it's extremely well put, actually. That's exactly what tragedy does teach you, in, in fact. Um, are there any potential forces or movements still left um, on the Russian side of the equation within Ukraine that might be willing to reach out to these, to these nationalists still? I mean, is this, a, is this something that you know, you can imagine people who must be feeling very embittered in some of these some of these people who have been prison or escaped or whatever. I mean, do they still feel uh, um, or desire at this moment in time to achieve that kind of reconciliation? I think it is a rare person mm. who can look beyond their own offenses and their own suffering in their lifetime. Mm. I grew up, I'm uh, just over 60, um, but I grew up in Europe, in Germany, and we would go to Holland, my family, <clears throat> every summer. And I can recall as a young child with what disdain and contempt many older Dutch people when I was uh, 10, or less, or, or just around the age of 10, would treat my parents and even myself uh, because we spoke German to them. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but by within 10 years after that, mm. so maybe, uh, let's say, 30 years after the war, so an entire generation, and then some, young people didn't understand the reasons for that animosity. They had not experienced it. And that is one of the blessings that time brings. They say time heals all wounds, but not the wounds that the individual person wishes to retain for themselves. Mm -hmm. But it allows future generations mm -hmm. not to dwell on those wounds because it makes them hard to understand and hard to recreate. And I think that's a very hopeful sign for the future, namely mm -hmm. that as time passes, generations change, and we forget the slights of the past. And by slight, I don't mean to make light of, of tremendous suffering, but just mm -hmm. that everything is seen differently in historical perspective, just that we're not there yet. Yeah. Uh, how, uh, how do you see this? Um... Uh, speaking of time, uh, healing all wounds, uh, how, how do you see the time um, being on the side of this uh, partnership, though, between the West and a lot of the the, the, yeah, the nationalists in Ukraine? Because uh, I remember after 2014, we had a, a lot of the Western media were quite horrified and appalled uh, by the fact that the very yeah, far-right nationalists and were openly displaying Nazi symbols were uh, accruing such a huge amount of influence. And even uh, only this week, mm. we see Poland expressing, again, in the main ally of Ukraine, still expressing uh, its profound uh, unhappiness with how you know, the data statues are popping up and you know these fascist slogans are now being spoken across the country. Um, I was just, is, is this, uh, well, it, it does seem like a, marriage of convenience, not just on the Western side being not comfortably comfortable in the long run, but also, as you mentioned, nationalists themselves in, in Ukraine, they, they're not pro-liberal or necessarily pro-Western. Um, so uh, how is, is this partnership dependent on an uh, alliance against Russia? Uh, so, uh, but, or is it, uh, or is or will this fall apart as soon as uh, the war would come to an end? Or how do you see this? Neither, neither one outcome nor the other in the short term. But we need to take a broader historical perspective. So I'm a bad political scientist in that sense because I don't have and I don't see any uh, immediate solutions or solutions for the short term. At the same time, however, I see that history tends to temper the anger of communities and to allow them a path toward healing, a path toward healing with which I describe in the first chapter and the final chapter of my book literally involves forgetting, forgetting the hurt of the past and moving on to a brighter future, imagining a brighter future. But as I said, um, the decision to embrace uh, and to view 
to embrace former enemies as neighbors and even potential friends is something that each individual has to go through. And for some, it will not be possible in their lifetime. And for others, it will be possible. But as with each succeeding generation, it becomes harder for that successive succeeding generation to, to understand why we need to hate those people because they seem just like us in so many ways. Hmm. And so that I think is the default position in history to view others with understanding and compassion until they prove otherwise. Well, I like that. Uh, I always like to finish on an op optimistic note. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, Alexander or uh, uh, Professor Petros, you have anything uh, uh, yeah, last you want to add? No, I, I, I just wanted to say that when it comes to these conflicts, I am always an optimist. I, you, know, you live around you, you look around you, you look in Europe, things do eventually sort themselves out. It can be often a long and twisted road, but we do eventually get there in the end. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So we will find, we will find an end point and it will be a, a, a good one. But of course, we are still on that very long and very twisted road. We've only done a few turns, perhaps. So, I mean, we've got a long way to go before we get there. That's what I would say. The, the one thing that I would add, because mm. it hasn't come up, is that uh, people often say, well, what is the practical mechanism that you would recommend for mm. a tragic therapy? Because clearly we don't live in an Athenian polis which was a community that could essentially be herded to <clears throat> and required to view these um, enlightening and soul-searing dramas. We don't have anything like that today, mm. but it turns out that we do have a mechanism that has been in place for roughly 50 years mm. and uh, has worked in uh, also more than 50 countries called Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. Mm. And that is a vast uh, well of experience that many countries have tapped into mm -hmm. and that I think is very would be very promising for Ukraine as well. And the examples mm. that I talk about, Guatemala, Spain, and South Africa involve uh, regions of the world which have been uh, demonized, their opponents have been involved in civil war. These civil wars have sometimes lasted 20 and 30 years. And afterwards, the process of healing does begin. And there is a precedent and examples of how to do it. And we should all look to those examples with optimism when we're thinking about Ukraine as well. Yeah. I, yeah, I hope so as well. I get, but uh, yeah, I guess that's been one of my disappointments over the past few years, uh, because uh, been, exactly because this is a dual conflict, both internally within Ukraine and in Europe. Uh, I feel the logic has often gone both ways. So, for example, um, when we've seen uh, possible reconciliation in, in Ukraine, uh, we see been been obstructed, for example, by uh, yeah, sh um, shutting down op op political opposition, shutting down opposition media arresting uh, uh, the opposition leader, the main opposition leader in, in Ukraine. And at, at none of this point did I see any of the 
the NATO countries stepping up saying, listen, this is going to exacerbate the conflict. Instead, I think I feel like a lot of the sentiment behind it was, well, if we're shutting down the opposition media, politicians arresting the opposition leader, well, at least that means uh, there will be less Russian influence and it will be more European and that will be a path towards more stability. So I feel like this, uh, the effort of, of cleansing Ukraine of Russia has it kind of uh, made the West um, more uh, well accepting of uh, of this uh, well very ugly developments within Ukraine, where the well the two nations, as you described them, within one state, uh, continue to it clash. Is, it is, I think, impossible in the any for future that I can foresee in which Russian influence overall is eliminated in Ukraine. And by simple virtue of the fact that Russia is where it is and its cultural and media output simply overwhelms in its very attractiveness in Ukraine, that of Ukrainian domestic media. At least until last year, I should say 2021 or early 2022, Every poll uh, shown shows that there is um, uh, that Russian cultural production. I'm not talking about political production, but simply the the broad sweep and scope of Russian culture is something that is very close to the vast majority of Ukrainians. And Mm -hmm. no matter what happens, I would say, politically and militarily, that stands on its own, just mm. as uh, you know, German culture stands on its own. You may say, "Well, I I can't uh, tolerate German culture today because it's uh, you know b- because it is um, it coexists, shall we say, or it has coexisted with uh, Nazi regimes." But that is not the point. We unfortunately over-politicize culture, when we should be striving to culturalize politics, to Mm. broaden the scope of our politics and bring more of the general values of of the cultures of humanity that particularly have a a broad uh, significance uh, to, to, and and, and 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 an appeal that transcends national identity, we should be emphasizing that so that we can precisely see the humanity in our opponents, without which we could never resolve any conflict in the world. (laughs) Well, Nikolai Petro, uh, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Um, And uh, for everyone watching, uh, please, yeah, um, make sure to look out for the tragedy of Ukraine. Uh, excellent mm-hmm. book, uh, definitely something everyone re- needs to read if they want to understand uh, the domestic uh, components of this uh, conflict. So, uh, yeah, thank you again, and thanks to you as well, Alexander. And um, thank you. Here, mm. nice to talk to you both. <laughs> nice. Have a good New Year. <laughs> it's very.